I wanted to set the stage for my topic tonight. The title is More Like Jesus. I was going to call my message Grow Up, but that didn't sound as user-friendly, so I went with More Like Jesus. Um, And I wanted to share with you where the topic came from. How many of you know the name Tim Keller? Have you heard that name before? Okay, good. A lot of you are familiar with Tim Keller. He's a well-known Christian leader and an online voice. Steve and I enjoyed his devotional called Songs of Jesus. If you need a new devotional, that's a really good one to go through. But he died this year on May the 19th at age 72. And I noticed an article that came out just after his death, and I read it, and it was very challenging to me. Um, And it was the impetus for me wrestling with this topic for a while. And so when Pastor Don asked me to speak, this is what I thought to speak on. Because if God's dealing with me, maybe, just maybe, he might be dealing with other people as well. So I wanted to share the article and some scriptures that I found helpful. Now I'm going to ask you, please, please be kind to me. I'm going to read a portion of the article, not the whole thing, but it's long. So stick with me, buckle your seatbelts, and and we'll get through it. And I'm going to read, um, well, it's probably going to take about five minutes, so stay with me, okay? The article is written by Tish Harrison Warren. She is an opinion writer for Times, and she wrote this article on May the 28th, and it's entitled, Tim Keller Showed Me What a Christian Leader should be. You're welcome to look it up if you want to. And here's what she writes. In my early 20s, I attended an event where Tim Keller, an Orthodox Evangelical Presbyterian pastor, was having a public debate with a secular humanist. In the nearly 20 years that have passed since that event, I still remember one moment distinctly. The secular humanist struggled with a point he was making, and he was unclear, something that happens often enough in public speaking. Keller could have chosen to go in for the kill rhetorically and make his opponent look foolish, but instead he paused and asked, is this what you mean? He then restated the secular argument in a clearer, better way, arguing against his own point of view, and the other speaker agreed that is what he meant. And Keller continued countering the now much stronger point. This generosity and understanding towards those with whom we disagree helped shape the way I now see the world. It had more of an impact on me as a Christian than any argument could have. You see, Tim Keller refused the easier route of debate, insisting on finding the best argument of others, even if it meant strengthening his opponent's case. He was in pursuit of truth and kindness, not point scoring. That night I saw what Christian leaders should look like. He died this month at 72 from pancreatic cancer. He was best known for planting, pastoring Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, which despite being a theologically conservative church in a secular progressive city, grew to be over 5,000 people, mostly young professionals. Last week, a writer described Tim Keller in the Atlantic as one of the 21st century's most influential and revered church leaders, a pastor and a theologian. Tim Keller had a remarkably brilliant mind and an ability to communicate complicated theological ideas in simple, relatable ways. He was courageous, yet profoundly humble. And what I will remember him for, though, is his generous kindness. Six years ago, out of the blue, he emailed me. I had published a controversial piece and was being hammered online 
a common occurrence these days for any public writer, especially one who, like Jim Keller, doesn't fit neatly into right or left boxes. He wrote simply to encourage me, to tell me to keep my chin up and keep writing, and this meant the world to me. After that, Tim became a chief source of cheerleading and guidance in my life, a protective older brother or father figure, a life coach, and a spiritual sage combined. When Tim would call, he wanted to talk about the hope and beauty he had found in Jesus and how we might best communicate that hope in our moment. Tim's relationship with me was yet another example of his investment in people across differences. He was in a denomination that doesn't ordain women. And he believed the Bible calls for distinct roles for men and women within the church and household. And I am a woman who is an ordained priest. We discussed our disagreements openly, but the conversations were never hostile. We found more unity in our mutual faith in Christ and commitment to the Bible than our differences could ever undo. Our theological differences about gender roles didn't keep him from supporting my work in the way that he could. Tim was criticized for some by being too theologically conservative, by others for being too liberal, and others for being too moderate. However, he never seemed bitter or upset by the criticism. He took it all in stride and encouraged me to as well, signing emails with advice like, keep that skin thickening. Tim seemed so secure in his relationship with God, he wasn't threatened by anything. He was at ease with disagreement and difference. He didn't fret over the future of the church. He didn't even fear death. Some Christian critics say that Tim Keller was a model of engagement. His gentle, winsome approach to those with whom he disagreed is outdated. They say in that increased secularization and progressive hostility towards traditional Christianity requires that the faithful have to hit back and respond in kind and dominate and humiliate those who oppose us. But Tim wasn't kind or gentle or loving to others as some sort of strategy to win culture wars and grow his church or achieve a particular result. Tim loved his neighbors, even across deep differences, simply because he was a man who had been transformed by the grace of Jesus. And as he wrote in the Times, he believed and lived as if the gospel gives us the resources to love people who reject both our beliefs and us personally. The Christian scriptures describe the fruit of the Spirit, what grows in us as we walk with God, as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Tim's life was marked by these things. He inhabited these ways of being not as a means to any end, but as a response to his relationship with Christ and love for his neighbor. Last paragraph. Younger Christians, many of whom feel disaffected, and disillusioned by the tone and antics and political idolatry of a flailing American church have very few older leaders to look up to, very few public guides who have walked further down life's hard road. And Tim, of course, wasn't the only one, but he certainly was a shining light that proved that Christian leaders could steadfastly exhibit intelligence, integrity, graciousness, and counterculture kindness, and he showed us a way of being. That's the end of the article. So I read that, and it challenged me. Am I like him? Would people speak of me in the same way? 
It appears that out of his relationship with Jesus, Tim Keller had a way with people marked by two important things. He was close to God and knew the truth. And he loved his neighbor. By God's grace, his life was marked by the ability to balance those two things. Truth and love. Both of those things are spoken about in our scripture tonight. So if you have your Bibles, it will be on the screen, but you can turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. He, Jesus, who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith We don't have a whole lot of that unity anymore. Of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature man or womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And I want you to put your eyes on this first because we're going to go back to it. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up in, builds itself up in love. We have a seeming growing divide amongst Christians. So let me take a few minutes to lay out the problem from what I believe is the source. First, this is a little participation here. Can we all agree that those of us here who are committed to following Jesus, that we all want to or should want to be more like him? Yes? Yes. Okay. Also, can we agree that without God's help, we cannot do this? Yes. Good. Well done. Okay, this is a good starting place. Scripture makes it clear that many believers, some of us, are still children. We haven't grown up. And we are not maturing Christ in how we walk out our faith. And because we are immature, there are divisions and footholds in the body of Christ. We have a lot of divisions and footholds. And you're going to notice tonight I've pitted two chairs against each other because I'm going to talk about one area in particular where there's one side versus the other side. And you're going to see how I lay that out. But I'm going to do a little side note here for you about church life. Isn't it amazing when you come to church for any length of time that God often puts someone in your path at church who bothers you, rubs you the wrong way, is difficult, disagreeable, but he does it as a gift to us so that we can practice the fruit of the Spirit And this helps us to mature and grow up to be more like Jesus through patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. What, did you think you were the only one who didn't get along with everybody? Here's the thing. Maybe you are the gift for someone else. (laughs) Yes. Some of you are now thinking, is it me? The church, the body of Christ, is where we as believers are meant to be in unity together. Instead, we're at odds. Scripture tells us that in our immaturity, we are often swayed and tossed and tricked 
by cunning and deceitful, deceitful schemes that we cannot see. Now, there are many schemes of the devil out there in the world and also in the church. And it's easy to get tripped up, but there is a solution. So what do we do? You have a part to play here at Cedarview. And you also have a part to play in the larger, broader world church. There's something you're supposed to be doing. And in doing so, you will grow up and you will help unify the church. I have a part to play too. And what I'm talking about is found in the middle of the passage we just read that I asked you to put your eyes on. And I'm going to ask you to go back to it right now. Can you put your eyes on verse 15? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Hmm. So what we find is these days in our very progressive culture, we tend to have two groups. We have over here team truth. Speak the truth. Very important. And then over here, we have team love. Show love. Very important. The problem is these two teams are often at odds with each other, and they don't get along. And what we've forgotten is it's not either or. It's both. Let me lay that out for you and what I mean by that. I believe what happens is we all get part of this right. And we all fall on the spectrum here as believers. Some of us find it really easy to love people. We care about people. And we gravitate, others of us gravitate naturally towards telling the truth, knowing the truth, speaking the truth. And what happens is sometimes we're not good at the other part, and we tend to take a side. And we pit ourselves against each other, almost like political parties, left and right. Oh, there's those who just so love, love so much, but they never tell people the truth. Oh, those people, they're always telling the truth, but they never know how to show love. And what's supposed to happen as we grow up is we're supposed to do both. The goal for each of us, walking in maturity in Christ, is shown by first knowing the truth and speaking it with courage. Even when it's difficult and even when it costs us something. And second and equally important to speak and act with humility, graciousness, and compassion with love. I'm not talking about the love feeling. I'm talking about the love action. The love feeling can come afterwards, but the love action comes first. So we find ourselves right or left of the goal. Extending love, which is a wonderful, godly thing to do. However, sometimes in that love, trying to be nice and kind and tolerant to get along, we find it hard to speak the truth of God's word to people who need to hear it. We choose to leave out parts that maybe people might not like. Or some of us focus on speaking the truth, which is also a godly thing to do. But if we're not careful, we can sometimes wield God's word without compassion in a proud or ungenerous way and show no love, no extension of the grace that we've received, like we've somehow forgotten what God's done for us. So I'd like to address both sides and how we need to grow up to be more like Jesus. Yay, good news. Here's the first point. We've made it to point number one. Don't be afraid. Speaking the truth. Point number one, we must be speakers of the truth. And to be speakers of the truth, you have to know the truth. And then once you know it, you need God's help with boldness and power that only he can give us. 
The problem with a lot of us is we don't know the truth because we're not in the word ourselves and everything we receive is secondhand through someone else. To speak God's word, you have to be in God's word and you have to know God's word and you need to pick up the spoon and feed yourself. It's good to be here with the body of Christ in our midst to make sure that we're not making errors, we're not misinterpreting, we hear what other people are saying to help us grow deeper, we read theological devotionals and journals, but that's no substitute for being in God's word. And that's how we start by knowing the truth. And it's God's word, sometimes that is difficult for us. We have to wrestle with it because not all of the verses are easy. Is there anybody else who's come to a part of the Bible that's hard, that you either don't get or you're not sure you agree with or you don't want to tell anybody it says that because it sounds so difficult? Is there anybody else who's read one of those parts? Okay, good. Thank you. I'm not the only one. But that doesn't mean we get off scot-free and we pretend that it's not there. It means we've got to wrestle our way through it to come to a better understanding of that. We humbly come to God and we ask for help to believe and to understand. Now, the good news is God gave us brains and he actually wants us to use them. When we come to church, he doesn't want us to turn them off and just accept whatever's happening. We are supposed to work this stuff through. You are supposed to look at the evidence. You are supposed to read. You are supposed to dig. You're supposed to figure it out. The Bible actually uses the word wrestle. You've seen wrestlers, right? Imagine you doing that with concepts in the Bible. Some of them are going to be hard that you have to work out. And the Bible tells us we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians. But knowing that even with all the wrestling, can we ever fully know everything God knows? and understand everything God knows. Not yet. One day, but not yet. Because Isaiah 55 says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So we understand as much as we can, and the rest, we go on faith, and we keep learning, and we keep growing. However, as we learn this stuff, we need to be speaking the truth. By watering down or not speaking the truth, we then wonder why we are ineffective and powerless witnesses for him. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, it's God's word that does the work. We just speak it. We've got to have God's word in our mouth. His word does the work. There's no substitute for us knowing his word, and it's the only way to grow up in truth, to know it, to choose to believe it, to have faith, and not to change it or water it down for people. I do love the sentence. My husband also loves this sentence. We've talked about this before. Mark 9.24, by the father of the boy who was asking Jesus for help, and he said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. This is a journey and a process. We're not going to know it all overnight. God can help us in our knowing and our understanding. So we have to be careful not to dismiss or twist God's word to say what we'd like it to say. There's hard stuff we have to walk through, but we have to be careful that those schemes of the devil right now to rewrite or reinterpret God's word to make it more comfortable for us now in today's society 
that we don't do that. Ask yourself, a little check-in right now, are you a speaker of God's truth? Or do you keep your light hidden under a bushel? Do you speak his words? Do you have that courage? You see, it is the most loving thing you can do for someone to tell them the truth. By keeping the truth from someone who needs to hear it, it's an indicator that the person that you love the most is yourself. Point number two. Not only do we need to be speakers of truth, but we must be extenders of the love and the grace that God has given to us. And to do that, we must daily, intentionally, and actively remember what Jesus has done for us so that we can extend that love, grace, and compassion to other people. John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do people see God's love in you? Do they know that you are a disciple of Christ or just that you are really bossy and really moral? I need to hear this. (laughs) You can be direct and compassionate. Don't you love the people that say, I'm just blunt. I just tell it the way it is. Like somehow that allows them to be mean. You can tell the truth without being horrible. So how do I show God's love? Well, we take the time to remember all God has done for us, all he has forgiven us. Where would we be without him? This allows us to love others knowing that we could be them. We could be the person on the hearing end of things. How how would you want to be told things that were hard to hear? People need the truth and they need kindness. Side note number two, last one of the night. Not everyone is going to feel love and hear truth even when you are being truthful and loving. Some people are going to feel judged and unloved no matter what you say or how you say it. That's just a fact. Especially nowadays when disagreeing with someone just automatically means you hate them, right? But it doesn't matter how it is received because you can't control that. You do have the power to decide how you speak and act and that's on you. So I'll ask you, have you forgotten your need for Christ? Or do you remember daily what he's done and live and walk with a thankful heart? You see, when we look at brothers and sisters caught up in sin, or when we are sharing our faith with the lost, do we show compassion, feel compassion for them, knowing we too are frail, and without Christ, we would be exactly where they are too. So how do I grow up in love? I remember all he's done for me. Point number three. We're all somewhere on this continuum of love and truth. And there's a very real danger at any time of falling one way or the other and giving up one or the other. Some have only love. There are those who just want to love and let live. After all, God is love, right? Yes, and that's incomplete. Some of us just want to be nice, get along, be tolerant, And we think that showing love means not doing or saying anything that might make someone else feel uncomfortable. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? You love your kids and sometimes you have to say no because you love them. And those kids are going to be mad because they're doing something they think is fun and you know it's dangerous and you still have to say no. You've heard of the analogy of the kids who want to play in traffic and the parent who says no. That translates here 
to us as well. However, we'll put up with it from our kids, but because of the extreme backlash in society right now about saying anything against the group think, we can be so, become so concerned about the other person's reaction to us that it causes us to stop talking. Nobody wants to think that we are fearful or wrong or narrow-minded. Many of you know that I teach grade one in the public school system as well as working here at the church. There's so much pressure to go along to get along. And we know that not everybody's going to hear us. There are scales on their eyes. Ears are hard of hearing. But that part isn't up to me. That part is up to the Holy Spirit. We plant the seeds and we don't worry about the backlash. We don't worry about what it will cost us. And we have to trust God with the outcome. Let me just speak personally really quickly. One day I might lose my job in the public school system. The pressure to promote this progressive agenda that conflicts with God's word is relentless. And let's be honest, I like to be liked. Nobody likes to be hated. I pray every day that God will help me to pick my battles. But I'll be honest, there are times when I've been pushed and pressured to do something that I know God won't be pleased about. And instead of speaking the truth in love, I have just thrown the truth out there in anger and frustration. That's not good either. We have to be careful that our posture towards people, I think of Tim Keller, is not defensive. We need to tell the truth with grace and humility and gentleness and care. And we need to imagine that the person on the other end is a loved family member who we long to see return to Christ. We have to be very careful that we don't value our own opinions above God's word. We know that when we put anything in the place of where God is supposed to be, that we're making an idol. And when our opinion is more important than what God's word says, the idol that we've just made is ourselves. This is why Pastor Don so frequently warns us about false teaching and these new progressive movements. Because at some point, those on the path stop believing in the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself. The other shift that we have is the shift away from love and sticking with the truth, only the cold, hard truth. And we need to check that our hearts have not grown cold towards our neighbor. It's really easy to do. Have we written people off? I think of friends and family that go through hard times. Is there anybody that's too far gone that you just stop praying for, speaking to, because it's difficult? Are we short-tempered or judgmental? Do we, out there in the world, consider some sins too bad or too gross for people to be redeemed of? Is God not powerful enough to reach them too? God shows his love to us. We need to show kindness in speech and in disagreement and extend grace to those entangled in sin. I see areas where I can have this problem. For those of us who have been in the faith for a long time, sometimes it's easy to think of ourselves as already mature, where we think privately and pridefully that we are doing a better job as a Christian than those people. Truth be told that on this faith journey, we're all struggling with something, and maybe my sin right now is just not as visible yet. We're reminded that God is gracious to each one of us, and that James 6-7 says, 
we have to be careful because he actively opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we are too prideful in that posture, God is opposing us. So Kelly, that's great. Thank you for pointing out this problem. How do we solve it? And here's the final point. Point number four. It comes in two parts. Jesus shows you how. He sets the example in his word. And then he helps you to do it. We have to ask the Holy Spirit and allow him to work through us. Because we have access to all that Jesus had access to. The same truth and love. You see, we need Jesus to be like Jesus. We can't do this on our own strength. Some of us like to do things on our own strength. Isn't it exhausting to try to be like Jesus without Jesus' help? Can't be done. So let's conclude by looking right to Jesus. I'm going to read a final scripture. It's a story you probably already know. And we're going to see where Jesus spoke the truth in love as an example for how we were supposed to act. Mark 10, 17, 22 is when the young man comes up and speaks to Jesus. And I'm going to read this passage, and I'd like you, if you're able to, to follow along. It's not going to come up on the screen. If you've got a Bible, you can look it up there. Mark 10, 17 to 22. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all of these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. In this scripture, Jesus was approached by a stranger. He asked Jesus a question. Jesus told him the truth, specifically referring to scripture. And he showed love to him and applied the truth to this young man's situation. This is how we do it. And the outcome? Not what we would expect. This was Jesus, the most loving, the most truthful. Shouldn't the ending have been different? Shouldn't the young man have seen the truth, felt the love, and rushed into Jesus' arms repenting? Isn't that the outcome we would like to see? But the young man was dismayed, he was grieved, and he walked away. We have no control over the outcomes. But our goal is to grow up in the faith, function properly as part of the body of Christ with our brothers and sisters in unity, and to function properly As we share our faith, we need to grow up looking to the example of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit and be sure to speak the truth in love.